So I can shift just a bit, ask about kind of your experience having done this now for decades. What are the changes that have taken place in terms of the, the issues that non-Christians are raising, the ways that you're responding to the issues that are brought to you? And um, yeah, talk about the, the, the yeah. changing environment. Let me say uh, something about how things have not changed, because I think that's important. So often we hear it said, these apologetic arguments don't work anymore because we live in a postmodern culture right. in which logic and argumentation are no longer valued. Um, and I think this is a myth that is being perpetrated in our churches by misguided youth pastors. Uh, the fact is that I find that secular university students are very keenly interested in a rational approach to these issues and that if you approach the questions rationally by offering arguments for the existence of God, evidence for the resurrection of Jesus, then people respond on that level. I have virtually never had a student stand up in the Q&A time and say your argument is based upon a white, male, uh, logocentric uh, standards of argument and, and therefore it's worthless. It just never happens. So I, I don't buy into the idea that our culture is awash in relativism uh, that, that makes these arguments ineffective. On the contrary, I think that these arguments are extremely effective and we mustn't surrender them uh, to just telling or sharing our narrative and inviting people to participate in it. Having said that, I do think that one of the burning issues of our day today would be religious pluralism. Um, students are open to the existence of God and hearing arguments for God, but when you get to Jesus Christ, mm -hmm. the idea that Jesus Christ alone is the way to God is deeply offensive to people. Uh, and therefore needs to be tackled head on. This question of religious pluralism and how can you say there is one real, one true way to God, uh, that needs to be addressed. Having lived and studied in England and Germany and then lived in a French-speaking country in Belgium, do you see, the, is the European context different? Are there different issues I think the there? way in which the European context is different is that it's so deeply post-Christian there that Apathy just reigns. Apathy and skepticism. Um, boy, some of the experience I've had in Europe, for example, when I was at the University of Porto in Portugal, uh, nominally a Catholic country, but awash in secularism, the students were so skeptical. Hmm. When I was introduced and presented these arguments, they, they thought this cannot be, there cannot be a bona fide intellectual who is actually a Bible-believing Christian. And so they concluded I was an imposter. And they actually phoned the University of Louvain in Belgium to find out if I was, in fact, a visiting scholar at the university. They thought that I was a fraud, pretending to be something I'm not. And so that was a manifestation of the depth of the skepticism. When I was in Sweden, I was speaking at one of the universities there, and a student in the audience said to me during the Q&A time, he said, why are you here? And I said, well, the 
university has invited me to, to, to speak. And they said, I, I, no, no, we mean personally. Why are you here? You, don't you understand how unusual this is? What motivates you to do this? And I shared my testimony then about how I had come to Christ in high school and wanted to share this good news with university students. Well, at that point, one of the faculty members from the department that invited me stood up and said, well, now that, that's not why we invited Dr. Craig. <laughs> we invited Dr. Craig because he is a world-class scholar, philosopher, and theologian, and therefore we needed to hear from him. And I thought to myself, thank you, Lord. <laughs> but that kind of illustrates mm -hmm. the, the skepticism and the apathy. It's hard to even get them to come mm -hmm. to an event. Uh, by contrast, here in the U.S., we still do have the trappings of a Christian culture mm. here, particularly a theistic culture, um, and, and so it's easier to get an audience here, and, and they're more open than they are in, in Europe. I find in Canada, you have what I would call a mid-Atlantic culture that is sort of in between mm -hmm. Europe and the United States, and, and Canada is rapidly moving in the direction of Europe, uh, and I feel or, or fear that the U.S. is following in that train as well, which just underlines the importance of what you folks are doing in these reasonable faith chapters and local ministries to be salt and light in our culture uh, and to present the gospel in an intellectually credible way that thinking men and women can believe in. I'd like to go back to natural theology, and mm -hmm. particularly because this is the, the, the focus of your, your writing currently. Um, there have been many critics in the 20th century and into the present time of natural theology. It seems that these criticisms come up again and again, mm -hmm. that, um, that it's a mistake to try to argue from, quote unquote, pure reason or natural reason alone. Mm -hmm. For God's existence, that either the arguments don't work, or they give us a great mysterious X that has none of the qualities of the God of the Bible. So, what is it that these these critics of natural theology get wrong? And then, uh, kind of a, a couple other related questions: um, What do, why what is it that they get wrong? Why is the criticism repeated? And to push a little bit, could they be partially right? Are there forms of natural theology that, that are mistaken in some sense, that give the wrong kind of impression? Mm -hmm. Notice that the criticism that you've described doesn't say anything about the soundness of the argument. It doesn't expose a logical fallacy in the argument. It doesn't call into question the truth of any of the premises. So it does nothing whatsoever to show that these are not sound and cogent arguments for God. And they do lead to conclusions that have great specificity. For example, the Kalam cosmological argument gives us a first beginningless, uncaused, timeless, spaceless, immaterial, uh, personal creator of tremendous power and intelligence. So this is a very striking theistic concept. Um, but what these arguments say is that somehow, or, or what these criticisms say, is that these arguments, even if sound, are somehow inappropriate uh, or, or counterproductive, that they don't bring people to faith in Christ. 
And my colleague, J.P. Moreland, out of Talbot, has taken to responding to the, when people say to him, you can't bring anybody to Christ through argument. J.P. says, oh, yeah, you can. I've done it. <laughs> and I can say the same. We constantly get emails uh, and testimonies coming into reasonable faith of people who have come to Christ through seeing a debate or a video uh, or have come back to Christ after walking away from Christian faith through reasonable faith materials. Just here at St. Louis University, Michael Severing, the organizer of the conference on natural theology, shared with us, he's from Utah, came out of a Mormon church, Mormon background, and he got interested in the medieval Muslim philosophers like Al-Ghazali. Mm -hmm. And he went out to Biola and met some of the students in the department that I teach at out there. And when they heard about his interest in Al-Ghazali, they said, oh, you must love William Lane Craig and the Kalam cosmological argument. And he said, William, who, what argument? And this just lit a fire under him, he said. And to make a long story short, Michael became then a, a, a monotheist and a Trinitarian as a result of this. And is now reaching out to other Mormons uh, to try to reach them with, with the, the, the gospel. So this is just one very recent example in the last couple of days of meeting someone who has, as a result of these arguments, come to a, a more biblical faith. Now you're you're very well known as an apologist, and there there are a few others that would you know C.S. Lewis is widely known, of course. Who are some of the, in in your view, key figures in Christian apologetics? Let's say today, or maybe over the last century, that are not as well known. That in your view have done important work, mm -hmm. and 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 please mention any who may have influenced you in your own approach. Yes. Well, I mentioned already Stuart Hackett. Uh, and his book, The Resurrection of Theism. And, and uh, I think Stu is one of those unappreciated treasures. Uh, he was ahead of his time. He published The Resurrection of Theism in 1957. And unfortunately, he, press, he published it with Moody Press. Well, you can imagine the readers of Moody books wouldn't appreciate the Kalam cosmological argument. So like David Hume's treatise, it fell stillborn from the yeah, presence right. uh, and was forgotten. And I've often reflected that if Stu Hackett's Resurrection of Theism had been published by Cornell University Press, uh, the revolution in Christian philosophy that began in 1967 with Al Plantinga's uh, God and Other Minds would have begun 10 years earlier with mm. Stu Hackett's book. Uh, so he is one of those unappreciated heroes. Uh, and then I would say that the best Christian apologists, uh, and I say this with respect, are not the popularizers that we all know. Mm -hmm. These popularizers are very important for bringing this material down to the layman or the person in the street. But they, they're not the intellectual powerhouses behind the movement. You know, so you mean like Lee Strobel, for example. Yeah, who I, interviewed I was reluctant you, right? to mention names. Yes, of course. Yeah, Lee and, and I are and good interviewed friends. other people. And he put on the, the debate at Willow Creek that, that I had with Frank Zindler that was attended by eight thousand people. Uh, so yeah, Lee and I are good friends. Um, 
But some people, some Christians think that the great Christian thinkers of today are Robbie Zacharias, Lee Strobel, uh, and others. Well, mm -hmm. that's, that's not right. They, mm -hmm. they are the, the popular voice of apologetics. Mm -hmm. But the key figures are people like Alvin Plantinga, mm -hmm. N.T. Wright in New Testament studies, um, William Alston, um, and, and folks of that nature. These are the, the real powerhouses that are in the ivory tower mm -hmm. and don't often get out in the street. Um, and so the popularizers help to bring their work down out of the ivory tower and make it accessible to the layperson. Now you are in a unique position as a as a large, as an independent scholar writer who also teaches uh, at institutions, but not as a regular professor. But I want to right. talk about like where does what what's the institutional home for Christian apologetics? Is it in is it in the church context? Is it in hmm. Christian colleges, universities? What about um, people who are in, uh, in university institutions that are more secular, can they be function as Christian apologists? Would be a philosopher, let's say, in a in a private university that doesn't have a strong Christian. I was just talking with some of the folks at the conference at St. Louis University about this, and the remarkable freedom that philosophers enjoy today at secular universities to do their philosophizing from a Christian point of view. The old modernist view that you can only appeal to public reason and not your particular perspective is gone. Mm -hmm. And so now if you want to philosophize as a Marxist or as a Thomist or as uh, an evangelical Christian, you're perfectly fine to do that as long as you do your work with rigor and uh, care uh, and logical reasoning and careful definitions and so forth. And, and so this really has, at least in philosophy, opened up the field to Christian philosophers at secular universities. Now, you would know better than I that in many other disciplines at the secular university, there is a kind of political correctness that stifles mm -hmm. freedom of speech and inquiry. But at least in the realm of philosophy, I do think that there is opportunity for free expression and, and uh, free opinion. Um, once upon a time, the place for apologetics may have been in, a ch in the church when pastors like Jonathan Edwards were the cha intellectual champions. Mm -hmm. But that day seems to have passed now and, and our churches have largely abandoned the task of educating our laity. Mm -hmm. Instead, they tend to provide meaningful worship experiences or entertainment uh, or um, activities. But Christian education is pretty low on the rung, uh, low rung on the ladder, I think. And so this really has left it, I think, to Christian seminaries, divinity schools, uh, colleges, to carry the water for educating people in the area of the defense of the faith. And there are good programs in apologetics at schools like uh, Biola and uh, Houston Christian and, and other places where people can take degrees or just take courses and, and, and benefit from them. 
The, the Christian philosophers you mentioned in the secular universities, um, are they well acquainted with those that are working in the seminary context? Is there, uh, and you, well, you founded an organization, right? The Evangelical Philosophical, Philosophical Society, Society, right? Yes. So I assume that would be a meeting place where people in, in Christian affiliated institutions and ones that are not yeah. can exchange there are ideas. Really three, and, at least three professional philosophical Christian organizations. There's the Society of Christian Philosophers, there is the American Catholic Philosophical Society, and then there's the Evangelical Philosophical Society. And obviously the third is the one that is most evangelical, would be the one that I would identify most, both, most with, but I'm a member of the, uh, the first one as well. Um, and so Christian philosophers are well represented in the guild. And people like Alvin Plantinga, William Alston, Philip Quinn have been elected as the president of the American Philosophical Association, which is the national secular professional organization, uh, kind of like the American Medical Association. Uh, the APA is the one for philosophers. And so Christians are well respected in the discipline. Now, I, as I teach as a Protestant faculty member in a Catholic university. St. Louis, as you may be aware, is a very Catholic city from its early history. Do you have any thoughts on the relationship between evangelical uh, apologists and Catholic apologists? And there are people like Peter Kraft, right? Yeah. Who are widely read by, of course, he was evangelical, became Catholic. He was, Catholic, that's right. right. Often the best Catholic thinkers are these Protestant converts you know, like Eleanor Stump, you know, at St. Louis or Peter Craig. But you know, my, my limited experience, Mike, with Catholic apologists is that they are hungry and thirsty for reasonable faith materials and are using this Protestant material. Whereas most professional Catholic apologists seem to be geared toward converting Protestants to Catholicism. Mm. You, you see what I mean? The target audience is very different. Mm. They want to convince Protestants to convert. You mean like ca Catholic Answers is a, was a well-known I, I, I not had any first-hand acquaintance yeah. with okay. them. Yeah. But, but others, you know, like Bishop Rod, Robert Barron uh, with Word on Fire has a more general outlook to winning the culture, winning the world. And so his team just eats up reasonable faith material and, and disseminates it. So we are equipping these non-Protestant groups um, with our, our materials that, that they can use in propagating the gospel as well. So I've had Coptic Christians you know, these are folks from the ancient church in Egypt show up at our events, even Coptic priests with long black beards and flowing robes saying how much the Coptic church loves reasonable faith and the material that we supply. Mm -hmm. And I was at one uh, event where an Orthodox priest uh, came and I don't know if you've ever seen this monastery in Greece on Mount Athos. Mm -hmm. I saw a 60-minute segment on it once. This is clinging to the side of a cliff, uh, and, and the, hardly anybody can get in and out of there. It's a totally closed monastery. There's only one monk 
who has a computer and has access to the outside world, and he gets the prayer requests for then the monks to pray for. And he told me, or they told me, they said, Bill, the monks at Mount Athos are praying for you. Wow. 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 <laughs> so it, it, it is wonderful to think of the ecumenical reach that reasonable faith has because we're carrying forward C.S. Lewis's vision mm -hmm. of mere Christianity, mm -hmm. uh, those common core beliefs that are common property to all of the great Christian confessions. We'll stop right there. Stay close. We also don't want you to miss an opportunity to double the impact of your giving to Reasonable Faith. It's that time of year when our matching grant goes into place. Some generous donors will match whatever you give to the ministry of Reasonable Faith up to $250,000. So any gift you give will be doubled from now to the end of the year. So don't let this impact opportunity pass you by. Thank you for blessing Reasonable Faith with your prayers and financial support. Give online at reasonablefaith.org.